Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 390, Stamford Bridge. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Faye, Graham, and Samantha for signing up already. King Harold, his Huskarls, and the Ferd of Wessex were driving north as fast as they could. And Harold was terrified of what William the Bastard was amassing in Normandy. So it's hard to imagine that anything could have convinced him to leave the southern coast undefended. Unless he already knew that the north had been lost. Now granted, given the poor nature of our records, it is possible that Harold felt the weather had turned enough towards the winter that he finally felt free to deal with the dumpster fire that his brother was trying to light with his new Norwegian friends. And in that case, perhaps he began his march north without even knowing about the situation at Fulford. But I doubt it. But whatever Harold knew, or didn't know, in the second half of September of 1066... He and his army were riding hard for York. Riding. Because while the English weren't known for cavalry, they still did use horses in war. The English army of 1066 was primarily an infantry force that was supported by a small group of archers. Now, they might use horses on occasion for harrying, but for the most part, the English military fought their battles on foot. But... They did have horses, and they did use them in military operations. It was just that they mostly used them for transport. Once they got to the battlefield, the bulk of their forces would then dismount, form up, and fight on foot. And this actually makes a lot of practical sense. European horses, even Norman war horses, weren't exactly big during this period. We're a long way from the point where horse breeding programs would lead to the sleek, towering destrier that we see pictured in movies about knights and castles. So put those monsters with flowing manes and hooves the size of dinner plates out of your minds. They didn't exist in 1066. I mean, take the Normans as an example. After all, they were known for their cavalry. And their war horses during this period are estimated to have been, at most, between 14 and 15 hands high. To put that in context, for those of you who don't have horses, if your horse is under 14.2 hands high, it's actually a pony. So, there were a lot of Norman knights, these famed knights in shining armor, who were out there riding into battle on really muscular ponies. And these were people who would have already been much more focused on horse breeding than the English. And as such, we can assume that the English horses were probably literally just stout ponies. And so generally, the English preferred to fight shoulder to shoulder with their comrades, with their feet planted firmly in the mud, rather than, you know, dangling just above the ground while wobbling astride twilight sparkle. But even short horses can move a lot faster and carry a lot more than even the tallest of humans. So Harold, his army, and an absolutely gargantuan herd of ponies were headed north as quick as their adorable little legs could take them. 
but the people of York couldn't have known that. As far as they knew, the war was lost when the defenses of York failed at the Battle of Fulford Gate. And the costs of that loss were mounting. Archaeological evidence of this catastrophe sits at Fisher Gate. There, we find a grave of 29 men, all of whom died at approximately the same time, and many of whom suffered violent injuries consistent with wounds from weaponry. A few were even decapitated. The dating of those bodies has pointed to a death in the mid-11th century. Right about now. So it's highly likely that in a single cemetery, we're already seeing dozens of men who were killed at the Battle of Fulford Gate. And that's just one cemetery. And that was also just those who'd been afforded a burial. Who knows how many were buried elsewhere? Or just left in the bog? We honestly have no idea how many were lost. And we have absolutely no idea how many came away wounded. But we can be certain that the people of York had just suffered an enormous trauma. And many of them were probably only now coming to grips with their new reality. Now granted, their local leaders, Edwin, Morcar, and Waltheof, still lived. Apparently, while the accounts of the battle speak of bodies filling the swamp so thickly that you could walk across it without getting wet, the leaders who commanded that disaster had managed to escape. Must be nice. And interestingly, Earls Edwin and Morcart aren't mentioned in the records of what comes next. I don't know if they went into hiding or if they were there, but they weren't seen as meriting mention given that Northumbria was now conquered territory. But I'd wager that it was the latter. And given their rank, they were likely the figures who were arranging the peace treaty with King Harold Hadrada and that motherfucker Tostig. And if so, I doubt their presence was providing much comfort to the people of York. These boys were young and inexperienced, and clearly far too young to command armies. But now that they lost that battle, it would be on them to negotiate a peace treaty. Great. And while we've already spoken about how young Edwin and Morcar were, the fact was that their nominal ally, Waltheof, wasn't all that much better. You might recall that back in 1055, when his father Seward had died, Waltheof was considered way too young to rule. And that was actually one of the many factors that resulted in Tostig's ill-fated tenure as the Earl of Northumbria. Had Waltheof been older, he may have inherited his father's seat. But he wasn't. In 1055, he was way too young. Which means that now, 11 years later, he was probably still fairly young. We don't know when he was born, but we can surmise that by this point in his life, he was probably no older than in his early 20s. Which means that the highest ranked English officials in York were two teenagers and a guy who was possibly old enough to buy them a beer. Maybe. And if you're looking for courageous charges into battle... Boys in their teens and young men in their 20s are your best bet almost all of the time. But when it comes to complex negotiations and a cutthroat, bare-fisted political web of intrigue and obligations that would impact the lives of virtually everyone in Northumbria, well, those wispy little mustaches probably didn't provide much comfort. It wasn't their fault, 
but they simply lacked the experience to handle something like this. Hell, we're relatively certain they'd never even fought in a single battle, much less lost one and then had to negotiate from a weakened position as a result. But as the people of York tried to cope with the trauma of war, it was likely these three who were at the helm. And chances are, these boys would buckle. And when they did, they, along with the leading families of Northumbria, would probably lose their lands and titles which meant that large numbers of the remaining aristocratic overlords of Northumbria were probably readying themselves for the worst. Due to the inexperience of these boys, the noble members of ancient dynasties might have to learn how to earn a living. But as they stared down the negotiations, they couldn't have known that the King of England, his Huskarls, and the Ferd of Wessex were closing in on York. And if Harold hadn't already known of the loss at Fulford Gate when he set out for York, he would have heard it by now. It would have been clear to Harold that he needed to get the kingdom back, and that reality would have hit him hard, like a fat pony. He needed soldiers, a lot of them. And so it's unsurprising that we find a 12th century document that indicates the king had gathered fighters from Kent, Surrey, and Sussex when he rode out. And then he continued to pick up fighters from all along the Great North Road. Not just from local villages either, but also from religious communities. Don't forget that due to bookland, the English countryside was dotted with communities that served not a local lord, but communities that belonged to the church and they too would have been asked to provide fighters for the Ferd. And as the monks were unlikely to take up a spear, that duty would fall to the peasants who worked in the church's fields. Because when it came down to it, the monks and priests and bishops weren't all that different from other noble classes. They just tended to chant a bit more. So the call was sent out and messengers would have ridden through Mercia, the Five Boroughs, Lindsay, and East Anglia, all carrying the summons. The messengers would have alerted the community leaders that King Harold Godwinson rode to defend England and that he needed able-bodied men to join his army. And don't forget to bring Rainbow Dash with you because we're moving quick. Up in York, things were exceedingly grim. King Harold Hadrada was moving with a casual confidence. In fact, when he had entered the city, he only brought Tostig and his personal guard with him. The rest of the army was left outside the city walls. He looked like a man who had already conquered the kingdom. And now he was treating the city of York, not as a source for spoils of war or as a potential threat to his campaign, but as his future capital. This new king, was fearless. Or, at the very least, he didn't fear them. And records suggest that the invading army had an air of leisure and celebration about it. And it's not hard to see why. Hadrada had fought for a decade and a half against Denmark, and all he had found in that godforsaken kingdom was blood and sand. It must have been a bitter pill to swallow. But these English had collapsed after just a single charge. 
just one charge and their entire army had routed. And as for their leadership, well, they were just as cowardly and easily turned as Tostig had promised. One battle, a minor battle if he was being honest, and half the kingdom was his. And now these soft Englishmen were even offering up their sons and promising to support his campaign south. A campaign that Hadrada had been promised would be up against Tostig's weak, muddy-obsessed younger brother who hadn't acquired the crown through martial prowess because he wasn't a general. Instead, he was told, this king got it through weak courtly trickery. Based on everything Hadrada had seen here, and everything Tostig had told him about England and of his cowardly brother, you can understand why the Norse king felt that he had this in the bag. And so he didn't rush to take and loot York by force. Instead, he entered the city peacefully and took full account of his future capital. And rather than frantically pressing his advantage as fast as possible, he took the time to enjoy the moment, take it all in. He didn't even seem all that eager to relocate his ships from their mooring at Rickall. Everything suggests that Hadrada thought this was a done deal and that he, the new King of England, had all the time in the world. And for the people of York, I'm fairly certain that this looked like supreme confidence. And I think it's even odds that it actually was. But something to keep in mind is that Hadrada wasn't a young man. The dude was in his 50s, and it had been a hard 50s. We're not talking about Keanu Reeves' 50s here. I'm guessing it was closer to Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, where you take one look at him and you're all like, holy shit, Hadrada had been hard ridden. So it's also possible that he was tired and old. And this was just the speed that he moved at these days. And so, even though Hadrada had his victory on Wednesday the 20th, it wasn't until Sunday, September 24th of 1066 that King Harold Hadrada formally gathered at a council with the upper class of Northumbria. Now, the Northumbrian nobility would have called this gathering a gamont, or a moot, but Hadrada would have called it a thing. And as he was going to be their new king, they better start calling it a thing as well. And at Hadrada's thing, he accepted the formal submission of the assembled Northumbrian nobility. And he also indicated which members of that nobility must provide him hostages to guarantee that they wouldn't have any second thoughts. And as for how those hostages were selected, well, Snorri gives us a very clear answer. It was Tostig himself who told his Norse ally which sons to seize. This thing would have been terrifying and humiliating for the upper classes of York. These were a people who had a brutal and bloody political culture, but there were still certain limits on how politics played out. And they were limits that Hadrada wasn't following. So here at this gamot, sorry, thing, they were expected to present themselves before an invading raider promise him fealty, offer him whatever tribute was being demanded, and then as salt in the wound, 
that scheming bastard Tostig would whisper into their new king's ear and suddenly a group of Viking warriors would head off and kidnap their son with plans to take him, presumably, to Scandinavia. This would have been an absolute nightmare for the English aristocrats. And as for the Norse, well, while it was vindicating and somewhat entertaining to see your enemies brought so low, it was also time-consuming and boring. So the day dragged on and on. And all those oaths and all that kidnapping really was taking a lot of time. So much time, in fact, that the records indicate that not all the hostages could be delivered when they were demanded. And that's actually unsurprising when you consider that there were hundreds of hostages. So obviously it was going to take more than a few minutes to gather that many children, because in large part, it was children who would have been seized and held as hostages. So eventually they ran out of time. And the assembled English promised that they would gather the required children and that they definitely would be of an acceptable rank, but they would deliver them tomorrow. And for Hadrada, that actually would be fine, because the truth of the matter was that there was still plenty of work and administration to handle. Being a conqueror, providing you were intending to do it right, took a lot of time. So they would definitely need another thing anyway. Laws still needed to be settled. Lands and possessions needed to be seized and distributed to his men. And of course, there was also the question of who would rule over York in Hadrada's name. And sorting all that out really is a lot of work. And as anyone who has been part of any sort of government or major organization can tell you, when you have a task list that large, you need to break it up. Because otherwise, you run the risk of having a general meeting, sorry, thing, that lasts like six hours because everyone starts raising points of order over the amendment to the amendment and no one just calls the question. So it's best just to avoid that sort of aggravation, especially when the General Assembly involves drunken Vikings with weapons. Far better to handle this in bite-sized pieces. So once the oaths were made and some of the sons were seized, the Norse returned to their encampment and to their ships. They would handle the rest of the business of governing tomorrow when they returned. Because again, Hadrada was clearly seeking to have York as his capital, not as his victim. So obviously, he couldn't just set his warriors loose on the city and tell them to find their own accommodations. They had to go back. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he considered himself merciful as he marched out of the city gates and back to camp. And accompanying him on this march was Tostig. And I wonder if Hadrada started to wonder if Tostig had inflated his resume a bit. Because wasn't this guy supposed to be popular? Wasn't he supposed to be beloved by the people of England? So why did none of the people of York come out and just say, hi? Why did no one invite him to a feast or at least a beer? Also, why was he so eager to identify hostages? And here's where it got really strange. Why was he afraid to stay the night in his own city? Something didn't seem quite right here. But Tostig was still useful. For now. As for the Northumbrian nobility who were left behind in the city. Well, now that the Norse king and his English turncoat had left, they were left with the task of returning home and trying to find the words to explain to their spouses why their babies had been stolen. 
and how they might never see them again. Tostig was wise to return with Harold to the ships. Meanwhile, King Harold Godwinson's army was growing rapidly. The summons were being answered. And that's impressive, considering that this was at least the second mustering this year. And the last group who had answered were held for well over a month and had only just been sent home. Furthermore, Godwinson was not only a new king, but he came from a shockingly messy family which couldn't have helped his popularity. But even in the sparse records, we can still see that people were coming from all over the kingdom to join the king's army. And by late in the day on Sunday the 24th, as King Harold Hadrada was accepting the submission of the aristocracy of York, King Harold Godwinson, his huskarls, and his growing furred had reached Tadcaster. He was now within 10 miles of York, but the sun was already setting. It was too late for battle. Thankfully, due to their speed and the support of the locals, the Norse were none the wiser to his presence. Even though Harold's army was now 10 to 12,000 men, and who knows how many ponies, they didn't know he was there. So, as Hadrada handled the business of administrating what he believed to be his new kingdom, the actual King of England was just down the road and setting up centuries to hide the presence of his enormous army. They'd been marching for days now. They were exhausted. Even with the aid of horses, traveling for that long and at that pace was a brutal experience. And for the Ferdsmen, and the conscripts who were picked up along the way, well, it's entirely possible that a good portion of them had to quick march. The English had a lot of horses, but I'm not sure if they had horses for absolutely everyone who mustered. And in a class-based system like England, it would be the conscripts, the poor farmers who had spears thrust into their hands, who would have been expected to go on foot in the event that they were short on horses. And so Harold and his men were already running on empty when they reached Tagcaster. But with an encampment established, and the Norse unaware, they finally had a chance to get some precious hours of rest. And they would need it. Tomorrow was going to be a difficult day. One way or another, by the time the fighting was done, there would be only one king in England. As dawn broke on Monday the 25th, Harold Hadrada woke up aboard his ship. According to Snorri, the king and his men had remained aboard their ships overnight, or at least a good portion of them did. And as they shook off the previous night's festivities, they got ready for the day ahead. And the king began by tucking into his breakfast. And this sounds like I'm being artistic with the story here, but I'm not. Snorri actually takes the time in his account to let us know that the first thing that Hadrada did was have a good breakfast. And, you know, to be fair, that is important. I mean, when dealing with violent invading armies of Vikings, it's best to give them a bit of protein in the morning. Otherwise, their energy levels are going to get all wobbly throughout the day, and the last thing anyone would want is a hangry Viking with sudden low blood sugar. So Hadrada and I assume his men were having a hearty breakfast. And when their Viking tummies were nice and full, the king ordered the horns to be sounded, signaling 
that the fleet should head ashore. This wasn't exactly a quick start to the morning, but that's fine. The English could wait. And chances are many of them were gonna be late anyway. They were bringing in tributes and taxes and driving cattle takes time, as does carting goods. And that was for the easy tasks. The people who needed to bring hostages had the real difficult task ahead of them, especially since many of the sons who'd be selected would have been more than a little reluctant. So the time that it took to prepare a decent fry up and then get ashore wasn't exactly the end of the world. Honestly, there was no rush, especially since they had quite the march ahead of them. According to the Chronicle, the meeting spot was about seven miles to the east of York at a crossing called Stamford Bridge. And the Norse fleet had been stationed a good deal farther away than that. In all, Hadrada and his men were probably planning on marching about 15 miles in order to get to this meeting. It's not exactly something you want to do on an empty stomach. But considering how far away it was, you might be asking, why Stamford Bridge? I mean, why not have the hostages and taxes delivered directly to Hadrada's fleet? Wouldn't that be easier? Well, the truth is, we don't know why Stamford Bridge was selected. But it looks like Stamford Bridge wasn't just chosen for today's thing. Hadrada was also relocating a chunk of his force to that location with the intent of encamping them there. And for both the thing and also the encampment, Stamford Bridge was actually an ideal spot. Encamping Hadrada's forces there would place them close enough to York to keep the locals from getting ideas. But at the same time, Hadrada's army would be far enough from the city that they couldn't just loot his new capital if they got bored. Furthermore, if they needed to um, forage, well, they could do so at King Harold Godwinson's estate at Catton, which was just down the way. And that, I'm sure, would have really appealed to Tostig, who was likely itching to settle a few scores with his brother, not to mention the folks in York. And Tostig at this point might have been starting to feel a little frustrated that all the king had allowed him to do so far was identify some kidnapping victims. Most importantly, Stamford Bridge was the perfect central hub for logistics. It was located on a convergence of several roads that were leading to nearby towns, including Malton, Thornton La Street, and Bridlington. It was also directly on the Minster Way. In fact, this bridge was so central that it's either directly on or really near to a whole bunch of Roman roads. One even leads all the way to Scarborough, which I'm assured is pronounced Scarborough, though Simon and Garfunkel suggest otherwise. If you pull up a map right now, you can see how Stamford Bridge sits at the center of a spider web of roads that head out in all directions of the Shire, which is exactly what you would want if you were gathering regional taxes and hostages. And as a nice perk, Hadrada was also parking himself at one of the spots that someone would need to cross through if they wanted to seek help from the south. And it also was an ideal launching pad for the next phase of his campaign into Mercia and Wessex. Stamford was perfect. So Hadrada, once ashore, organized his men for the march. Meanwhile, in Tadcaster, the English army was preparing for battle. 
Last evening had passed blessedly without incident. The sentries had done their jobs. And based on what Herald scouts were able to see and report, the enemy was completely unaware that about 12,000 fighting men were a mere dozen miles from the Norse mooring at Rickall. And one informant even managed to bring back some intel. This would-be Norse king was planning to hold a thing at Stamford Bridge. So Harold Godwinson knew where his enemy would be, when he would be there, and, as far as he could tell, no one even suspected that he and the English army were even in the Shire, much less that they were within striking distance. And in that situation, Harold would have been faced with a choice. If Hadrada was at Stamford Bridge, his ships at Rickall would have been mostly undefended. Tempting. But Godwinson and his army would either need to have ships of their own to do a naval attack, or they would have to try and take those ships from the ground. That's risky, especially considering that there were bound to be at least a few raiders who'd be left with the boats, and they could get off quite a few arrows and then just push off from shore before the English got to them. And the truth is, that's not where Harold Hadrada was anyway. So there's no need to give up the element of surprise for some boats. Alternatively, the movement of the Norse army and the attention at Stamford Bridge meant that Godwinson had an opportunity to retake and fortify York. And once taken, York probably would hold for quite some time. But that would also mean that the army of England would be intentionally putting themselves under a siege, and the rest of the kingdom would be open to the tender mercies of Hadrada and his army. So King Harold Godwinson really only had one option. Crush Hadrada when he was out in the open. Ideally, at a location that was far from their ships and where they could not escape. Stamford Bridge was perfect. Or at least it would be, so long as they could maintain the element of surprise. So Godwinson and his men prepared their weapons and armor and they loaded whatever supplies and materials they brought with them onto their horses. And in short order, they were ready to move as quickly and as quietly as possible. And this was all happening while the Norse were having a bit of a lazy Monday. And it's easy to understand why. What Godwinson and his army had pulled off was nearly unheard of during this period. We don't have precise dates for when the English finally began their march, but estimates are that they crossed about 200 miles in less than a week. That's crazy. We're talking about probably somewhere around 40 miles per day. To put this in perspective, if you took a rider and you gave them everything that they needed for a 200-mile journey, and you told them to ride as hard as they dare, and you provided them with fresh horses along the way, that person would probably only pull off about 50 miles a day. Godwinson's force of over 10,000 men were carrying all their weapons, their armor, and their supplies. And they were likely marching for about half the day, every day, with hardly any breaks for about a week. Completely insane. But they'd pulled it off. And now they were within a dozen miles of their enemy. And they even had a night's rest behind them. And still, the Norse had no idea. 
Back at camp, the Norse were probably feeling pretty relaxed, maybe even a little celebratory. But at the same time, they did still have work they needed to do. And Harold Hedrada wasn't a fool. He hadn't been exactly impressed with the English military prowess when he fought them at Fulford Gate, but everyone said that these English weren't to be trusted. And even weak fighters can cause a lot of damage with just a little sabotage. So Hadrada decided he would leave a third of his troops behind to defend the ships, which probably amounted to about 3,000 men. Snorri tells us that the Norse army drew lots to see who could stay with the ships and who had to march to that thing. And they probably did that because if Hadrada had called for volunteers, everyone would have chosen to stay with the ships. Today was going to suck. These were warriors, not administrators. Long meetings full of crying people was not what they signed up for. So, to make it fair, lots were drawn. And when you're dealing with thousands of men, that was going to take a bit of time. But eventually, finally, about 3,000 fighters got the lucky break to kick back for the afternoon with the ships. And iced in aura, who was betrothed to Harold's daughter, was put in command of these men, along with Harold's son, Olaf, and the two sons of mighty Jarl Thorfinn of Orkney, Paul and Erland. And I have to imagine that the Norse nobles were probably pretty happy to hang out with the boats as well. This thing was gonna be a huge pain in the butt. It was also gonna be a long walk to get there and really boring. They were gonna have to make camp and also count taxes. And in these days, the taxes often came in the form of livestock, which meant that at least some of them would also need to shovel the poop that these taxes were producing before, you know, it overwhelmed their stupid camp. Also, it was hot, like weirdly hot, especially for September. In fact, it was so hot that they were probably starting to regret taking their sweet time this morning because it was only getting hotter by the minute. The fact was that the weather had been weird all throughout 1066. But in September, the North had been caught in a heat wave. And that was unfortunate for the Yorkish farmers who were out in the fields, as the harvest was fast approaching, and that kind of work was hard enough without sweating your way into renal failure. But for Harold Hadrada and his army, it was far more than unfortunate. It was downright cruel. I mean, these were guys who weren't exactly used to hot weather of any variety. And they were also heavily armed warriors, which meant they were heavily armed warriors wearing heavy armor. Heavy armor that was made out of metal and leather. Their helmets, their coats of mail, their shields, and all the other metal accessories that they had were soaking up the sun's rays and turning them into little branding irons and frying pans. And while the cloth and leather padding would keep the metal from burning their skin, it was also insulation that was keeping their body heat trapped in. I honestly can't imagine an outfit I'd want to wear less on a hot day. Also, this shit was heavy. And there was a legitimate question here as to whether their coats of mail would even be needed. It wasn't like they'd need them to push around the peasants. And the fact was that York had been taken the nobility of the region had sworn him fealty. About half the kingdom was already his. And that's because these English were not a warrior people. They were farmers. And so Hadrada and his men weren't heading to war. 
they were heading out to deal with their new subjects. Today was a day to collect what was owed to them in taxes of food and precious metals, livestock, hostages, and honestly, whatever else they felt like demanding from these people. Now, of course, you would still want to look like a professional. No one wants to hand over their last sheep to a guy armed only with his ear spoons. But do you need all this armor? So Harold Hadrada ordered his force of five or 6,000 men to bring their helmets, their shields, and their weapons. But don't bother with the heavy coats of mail. And my guess here is that he figured he was gonna hear enough whining in the meetings that he had scheduled with the English. And he didn't need to hear it from his own army for the whole of their 15-mile march as well. It would be far easier to just declare today to be casual Monday. And so that's what he did. And that did appear to have improved morale quite a bit. Instead of being weighed down, they would have had a much more comfortable walk in their tunics or shirts. And we're told that the Norse spirits were high as they began their march. Today might be a nice day after all. And joining Harold Hadrada was his little buddy, Tostig. Because when dealing with the politically savage reality of tributes and hostages, you would definitely want your politically savage advisor on hand. And so together, they took the countryside stroll to Stamford Bridge, where the English had assured them they would receive all that they were due. Meanwhile, Harold Godwinson and the English were marching towards York. They had pushed themselves to the brink of their physical capacity, and now they were nearly at their destination. But rather than it being over, instead, they knew they were headed to a long day of grueling combat. And the English were in the same heat wave as the Norse. Though for many of them, I'm sure that the heat was the last thing on their minds. Instead, I imagine that many of them were doing whatever they could to prepare themselves for what awaited. English armies during this time were still mostly comprised of the Ferd. When Godwin Siddham mustered his army, most of who answered would have been Ferdsmen. And as he marched, he drew even more members of the Ferd from Mercia, East Anglia, the Five Boroughs, and Lindsay. And Ferdsmen weren't warriors. They were farmers and craftsmen who were handed basic weaponry and told by their local lord or religious leader that they would have to fight. They were average men and boys, just normal people living normal lives, who were then dragged out of their communities and into something terrifying and deadly. I can only imagine what kind of dread they were internally battling as they marched. And so as they approached York, I wonder what this actually looked like. Did they try and boost morale with songs? Did they have chants? Did they even dare do something like that, considering that they wanted to maintain their secrecy? Did they just stare off into middle distance, trying to keep hold of their spears with clammy, shaking hands? I don't know. But this army wasn't just Ferdsmen. Harold Godwinson had also called up his Huskarls. And these were men who were indoctrinated into a warrior culture from a young age. Seasoned fighters who shared a lot in common with the ancestral Anglo-Saxon Hearthwarod. This wouldn't have been their first battle. Even if it was, for a couple of them, they would have been raised and enculturated into a society that expected battle. So for the Huskarls, this ride was probably something that they'd done many times before. It was a situation that they'd mentally and physically trained for since they were adolescents. And something else about these Huskarls, 
They were famous. The English Huskarl warriors were known to be so effective that even Hadrada had heard of them. His advisors had warned him specifically of their skill and ferocity, telling him that just one Huskarl was equal to multiple Norse warriors in battle. And so I wonder what they looked like on this march to Stamford Bridge. Did they have a cool confidence about them? A brash bravado? Either way, under these conditions, the miles probably would have passed pretty quickly, and they would have reached York before they knew it. But the Norse weren't there. They must have already headed to their thing. And we aren't told specifically how the people of York responded to Harold's arrival. But the subtext of the record is that his arrival was well-received. And considering all the tributes and taxes and children that have been seized as hostages, that isn't surprising. Even the North's hatred of the House of Godwin would have softened upon the sight of the king's massive military train being led into the city. And then the king kept marching through the city and out. I don't know if it dawned on the residents of York or if it was announced, but it was soon clear that the king and his army weren't staying. They were taking the fight directly to Hadrada. They weren't here to negotiate. They were here to destroy. And after days upon days of hard riding, the English were now only seven miles from Stamford Bridge and battle. Meanwhile, at Stamford Bridge, things were a bit of a shit show. Some of the English had assembled at the bridge, as promised, and they had brought with them their taxes, tributes, and hostages. But that just meant that now, these Scandinavian pirates were out there trying to figure out how to organize all this stuff, all while the sun was relentlessly beating down upon them. And that's not easy. I mean, you can't just cash app a pig. If you don't find a way to pin it in, it's gonna walk off. And herding livestock is a skill. It's also a lot of work. And if you don't have that skill, then it's even more work. Also, do you know what else takes a lot of work? Taking literally hundreds of children as hostages. There are some reports that suggest there were no fewer than 500 hostages seized. If you think herding a cow is a pain in the ass, Try a toddler. So, as Hadrada held his second thing in two days, and tried to set down new laws and organize the governance of these soft people, his fearsome Viking warriors were finding themselves working temp jobs as swine herds, milkmaids, and daycare nannies. Not exactly something that was in their skill set. The sagas also indicate the English hadn't brought them everything the invasion army thought they were owed. So we're also told that Hadrada's men spent a portion of the morning finding nearby farms and cattle rustling and sheep, uh, stealing. Is there a term for sheep theft? Sheep rustling feels like it's probably something else. But whatever you call it, there were now Viking warriors strewn about the Yorkshire countryside hunting for stray livestock, tackling toddlers, and cursing their bad luck for having drawn inland duty. Surely, this day could not get any worse. And at some point, a cloud of dust was spotted rising over the ridge of a hill. 
down the way of Gate Helmsley. Hadrada asked Tostig what he thought it was. And they looked for a moment. And soon the ridge began to sparkle? Like the hill was suddenly covered in ice. Then there was more dust and more sparkling. No, not sparkling, glinting. The hill was glinting. What was that? And suddenly it was clear. There were horses coming down that road. A lot of horses. And that glinting was the sunlight bouncing off the shields, the weapons. Oh God, and the armor. Hadrada asked who the hell that was. And according to Snorri, Tostig answered that it might be some of his friends coming to beg for mercy and offer fealty. Though Tostig, covering his bases, did admit that it could also be a hostile army. Oh, really? What was your first clue, Tostig? Was it all the f***ing weapons? But Hadrada was pretty sure he knew exactly what he was looking at. And so he ordered what men were within earshot to stop messing about with the sheep and form up. And even Tostig started to get a little nervous, now babbling something about his brother because he was pretty sure now that this was a hostile army. And somewhere in there was the King of England. Tostig's morale broke. The Norse army was split in two. It was also unarmored, and they had been chasing cows like 15 minutes ago. Also, holy shit, that was a lot of horses. So Tostig begged Hadrada to abandon Stamford Bridge and flee back to their ships. Like, now. If they could reach the ships, they could link up with the rest of the warriors, find their armor, and hopefully they'd figure out what to do next. And, and if he hadn't figured it out already, I imagine that Hadrada looked at Tostig and finally realized who he was. And what he wasn't. A general. Thankfully, he didn't need Tostig's military advice. He just needed a toady who could tell him which noble family was which. Because when it came to military matters, Hadrada already had that covered. The Norse king ordered three fast riders to head straight for the ships. They carried a command telling Eistin Ora and the rest of the army to head straight for Stamford immediately. Hadrada would stand and hold the English back on the bridge, and he would make them pay for every inch with blood until those reinforcements arrived. Tostig, suddenly realizing that they weren't going to retreat, clarified that actually he didn't want to run away. Oh no, when he suggested fleeing, he was just, you know, giving advice on what Hadrada and his men might have wanted to do. Tostig was totally happy to stay and fight. Sure, buddy. Hadrada just kept about his business. He ordered one man, Freerek, to go and fetch Land Ravager and fly it. It was time to do what he did best. He only had a moment, but he had years of experience and a continent's worth of battle behind him, guiding him. And the accounts get confused at this point, but taken together, it seems likely that an advanced force of English soldiers on horseback slammed into the unprepared and lightly armored Norsemen who were on the north side of the bridge. This was definitely not Tostig's friends. And as he watched his men get cut down, Hadrada was 
probably starting to wonder if Tostig had any friends. But that was enough evidence for him either way. And the Viking king immediately pulled back his remaining forces to the south end of the bridge, on the other side of the Derwent. He would use the bridge as a bottleneck to reduce the impact of the English superior numbers. And version C of the Chronicle adds that as the Norse retreated, one lone warrior stayed behind. He stood at the center of the bridge and held it. We're told that the English tried to break through using ranged weapons, javelins or arrows. But this warrior was either too agile or his shield was too thick because he stayed upright. A hundred years later, the scribes would write that the English charged the bridge and that this one lone warrior felled dozens of them in hand-to-hand combat, completely halting the English advance. Whatever happened here, it was buying Hadrada some time. And now he was able to get a good look at the full size and scale of what they were facing. And the horses in particular concerned him. He knew that cavalry forces could harry. They would charge in quickly, attack, and then retreat. And they could do that again and again. They could also flank an army in an instant. And so as his men, or according to the tale in version C, one single badass dude held the bridge, Hadrada arranged his forces to weather this sudden English storm. He had to hold until he got reinforcements. And version C of the Chronicle gives us a bit more of this story. Eventually, an Englishman waded through the Derwent, snuck under the bridge, and impaled from below the lone Norse defender on Stamford Bridge. And with that, the way was open, and the English army swarmed across the bridge and fanned out on the southern bank. Meanwhile, Snorri tells us that Hadrada was working hard. Even caught by surprise, the Norse king was in his element. He arranged his line into not a line. Instead, he ordered his army like a game of Neftafel. His warriors were formed into a circle, one that was equally thick all the way around. His men stood shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and prepared to withstand a charge from any direction. In the center of the ring would be the Norse archers, as well as Hadrada and his retinue. But not yet. His army still needed orders and they needed to see their commander. So Hadrada donned his famous coat of mail, a coat that was so long that it reached his mid-leg, and so thick that it had never been pierced. And this armor was so well known that it even had a name, Emma. Embraced by Emma, glistening in the heat, Hadrada mounted his jet-black warhorse and set about doing his work. He rode around the circle of Vikings, and told them how they would hold off the English, how they would withstand the hours of pounding cavalry attacks that he knew must be coming. The first two ranks of fighters forming the defensive circle were to take up spears. The first rank planted the base of the spears into the ground, with the tips held high, about 14 hands high. The second rank held their spears level and ready for men and horses alike. This wasn't the first time Hadrada had faced cavalry, and he wasn't some soft English country lord. He had traveled the world, 
fought in countless battles in strange lands. He'd faced armies like this before, many times, at home, far to the east, and now here in the west. He'd conquered, he'd killed, he'd plundered for his entire life. Empresses wanted him, pirates wanted to be him. He was Harold f***ing Hadrada. And as he barked further orders to his men, he fell off his horse. Because of course he did. It was true that he was a fierce warrior that empresses wanted, but the operative word there is was. That was decades ago. Hadrada had lived a long and hard life, and many of his most famous exploits were things he had done a very long time ago, long before his rule. And the truth is, he'd spent the last two decades doing the things that had earned him a slightly different reputation, and likely his new nickname. Hadrada, or Tyrant. And like many tyrants, he seems to have believed that things like time and age didn't apply to him. And if Hadrada was alive today, I'd imagine he'd be the kind of guy to post cringy photos of himself shirtless riding a horse. People who live through brutality and rely on strength often don't realize that strength isn't an inherent quality. It's a phase of life. If you help build a world that isn't safe for the weak, then eventually you build a world that isn't safe for you. And as Harold Hadrada met the reality of his age and the ground, across the field, Harold Godwinson turned to an advisor and asked who that fellow with a fancy helmet was. You know, the one who's dusting off his nice blue outfit and shimmying his way back onto his horse. I think that's King Harold Hadrada. Ugh, bad luck. And at this point, Godwinson decided it was probably time to reach out to his shit heel of a brother and this elderly friend of his. Maybe there was a chance to solve this without more bloodshed. Surely they must have known they were in over their heads. And so a force of 20 armored men, astride 20 armored horses, rode out to the Norse lines. Like, they rode straight up to the Norse lines. As in, when they arrived, one of the horsemen just shouted right over the shield wall and asked if Tostig is somewhere in this army. And from somewhere within the thicket of spears and shields, a familiar voice shouted back. Yeah, I won't deny I'm here. What of it? Spotting him in the crowd... The writer turned to the exiled Earl Tostig and told him that the crown was willing to grant him Northumbria and that all he would need to do is abandon this folly. Tostig spat back that it sure would have saved a lot of lives if someone had given him that offer a year ago. But then he went on and said if he um, took that offer, what would his friend King Harold Sigerson get for his trouble? The writer responded that he heard that King Harold Sigerson was pretty tall so he could have seven feet of English soil, or as as much as needed. Tostig hissed at the rider to return to his lines and get ready for war. He said he wouldn't abandon his allies so lightly. Even in the face of death, Tostig not only refused to be helped, but he was being a complete asshole about it. There's one in every family. It was clear that nobody with the power to do so was interested in calling off the impending slaughter. And so the writer, 
and his 20 companions returned to the English lines. Afterwards, Hadrada asked Tostig who that writer was, because he was funny, threatening, but kind of funny. Ahim, that was my brother, the King of England. And the old Viking king seethed. Why the fuck would you keep that from me? We could have killed him here and now. And Tostig replied that his brother had come with an offer of peace. So if he had identified Harold in that moment, it would have been a betrayal. And that would have made Tostig his murderer. It would have been dishonorable. Because jerk that he was, Tostig did have a sense of morality when it came down to it. And so all Hadrada could say in response was that the English king sat quite well in his stirrups. You know, for a little guy. Now, if that story is true, it's awesome. And it's actually not impossible that it is. Remember, Harold Hadrada was many things, including a scald. And Norse poetry had an entire culture of making diss tracks. So you can imagine that upon hearing that it was Godwinson who was talking trash about his height, Hadrada must have been desperate to get a clap back in there calling him short. And ever the scald, Snorri then tells us that Hadrada started to freestyle. Like right there and then on the battlefield, singing out battle poems on the fly to lift the spirits of his men. Quote, Advance, advance, no helmets glance, but blue swords play in our array. Advance, advance, no mail coats glance, but here we are and ne'er new fear, end quote. But here's the thing. Freestyle is a skill and not everyone is most deaf. And Snorri tells us that the Viking king then said, quote, these verses are but ill composed. I must try and make them better, end quote. So then he takes another swing at it. Quote, in Battlestorm we seek no Lee, with skulking head and bending knee, behind the hollow shields, with eye and hand we fend the head. Courage and skill stand in the stead of Panzer helm and shield in Hild's bloody field. End quote. And I don't know about you, but I suspect that the Norse line was probably starting to feel a little queasy right about now. They were facing off with a surprise army containing a detachment of English Harrian cavalry. They were outnumbered by like two to one at least. They left their f***ing armor at home. And now their king, when he wasn't falling off his horse, was treating this like it was open mic night at the improv. And you know how it goes. It can get pretty awkward when someone's dying on stage. So Snorri tells us that in this moment, one of his men, Theodolf, joined in and added his own verses. Quote, And should our king in battle fall, of fate that God may give to all, his sons will vengeance take, and never shun the son upon, too nobler eaglet in his run, and them will never forsake. End quote. This feels like some real loser energy to me. But, hey, I'm not an 11th century Norse warrior, so I can't say for certain whether or not listening to someone beatbox would help me come to terms with my own mortality. But there weren't only Norsemen in this army. Tostig had brought his mercenaries along with him, and I'm sure there were also some of the conscripts who were picked up in their earlier campaign. And I'm guessing that for them, this was really starting to look bad. Across the field, the English had seen enough. It was time to fight. 
Snorri's account of this battle suggests that the English opened up with skirmishing tactics. A smaller force of warriors were sent in on horseback to circle around the Norse lines and harry them. This wouldn't be the first time that a cavalry detachment would be used by the English. We've seen evidence of English cavalry being deployed in harrying and skirmishes going back at least to Alfred. So this is possible. But the Norse circular formation and the arrangement of their spears made it virtually impossible for the riders to break through. The English cavalry could make a direct attack upon the lines, but it would be suicide. And meanwhile, as they rode around the lines, the archers from within the circle were gradually picking them off with well-placed arrows. This wasn't going well. But Harold Godwinson's army wasn't a cavalry army. That was just a small detachment. Eventually, King Harold Godwinson's full army would have locked their shields and engaged the Norse. The English army slammed directly into the thicket of shields and spears. And they did it again and again and again. They fought warrior to warrior, conscript to conscript, Viking to Huskarl, all while the Norse held their lines and desperately clung to their shields. Back at the ships, riders came tearing into camp, screaming that the king was in peril, that Stamford Bridge had been a trap, and now they were isolated and outnumbered by an enemy host. Eisten Aura wasted no time, and he ordered everyone to find their heavy mail, grab their weapons, and run hard for Stamford Bridge, which was about 15 miles from their encampment. More than a half marathon, and they'd be running in heavy armor and in punishing heat. But the king was in danger, so they ran. Back at Stamford Bridge, Hadrada was doing whatever he could to just hold his line. It would take hours for relief to come, but it would come. Aura wouldn't abandon them. They just had to hold out long enough. We don't have a moment-by-moment -moment record of this battle, but we know that it was long. Extraordinarily long for its time. We also know that it involved perhaps as many as 20,000 men. All on a hot day. And many of the English were also in full armor, after being on a forced march for the better part of a week. So, after who knows how long, possibly hours, they began to get exhausted and they started to show it. The assaults on the North Shield Wall started to weaken. Hadrada and his men knew that this would be coming. It was only a matter of time. This was the second time that they'd faced these Englishmen. And as they learned at Fulford Gate, these people didn't have much fight in them. Once things got hard, they'd break. And as if on cue, a chunk of the English line began to retreat. This was the break the Norse were waiting for. And they surged forward. They needed to end this. They were going to stomp this army right here, right now. Just like they had done at Fulford Gate. But this wasn't Fulford Gate. At Fulford Gate, the Norse had faced a small conscript force of farmers led by a pair of teenagers who'd never commanded a battle. And while I'm sure pushing around a 13-year-old made them feel pretty tough, they were now up against a veteran of many battles 
and a victor of many wars. A king who was leading far more than a small militia of dispirited conscript farmers. Oh, there certainly were farmers in this army, but there were also Huskarls, a lot of them. The very same warriors that Hadrada had been warned about. Warriors who, it was believed, were equal in battle to two or more Vikings. And this wasn't a retreat, it was a feint. And now there was a hole in the Norse shield wall. A hail of arrows and javelins sailed through the air and sunk into the bodies of the exposed and unarmored Norse fighters. And in an instant, the Norse shield wall began to collapse. The Norse army was devolving into chaos, and as their lines disintegrated, their chance of survival went with them. If those lines couldn't be reestablished, and if their morale couldn't be repaired, they were all going to die. They had just one chance at this. Harold had but one chance at this. It was time. Because there's one thing I've never told you about Harold Hadrada. He was a berserker. The great king finally gave in to his battle rage and let the red mist take him. He threw off his armor, gripped his sword in both hands, and dove into the center of the melee. His personal guard raced to keep up. Some of the most experienced veteran Norse warriors in the army, all running headlong to catch up with their king. Alongside his fearless standard bearer, who eschewed weaponry to instead brandish land ravager in full defiance of the English onslaught. They were now face to face with the Huskarls. An age might be catching up with the king, but when he was in his frenzy, that only mattered so much. Hadrada pounded the English with his two-handed sword, cleaving helmets, mail, bones, and skull like the prow of a ship that parts the waves. This attack was so fierce the later scalds sang of it, saying, quote, Where battle storm was ringing, when arrow cloud was singing, Harold stood there of armor bare, his deadly sword still swinging. The foemen feel its bite, his Norsemen rush to fight, danger to share with Harold there, where steel on steel was ringing. End quote. And suddenly, an arrow struck him in the throat. It was probably an easy shot, to be honest. The presence of the banner and his attire would have made him an easy target to pick out in a crowd. And the English had very good archers, especially those in the king's retinue. So the Norse king faltered and hit the ground. And I wonder if he came out of his battle rage as the life drained out of him. If he noticed that his personal guard, now surrounded by Huskarls, began to fall all around him. I wonder if he saw his banner on the ground. Was he already drifting into darkness when an unnamed Norse fighter snatched it up and retreated behind what was left of the shield wall? I don't know. But with the king lying dead in the field, the English halted the attack and gave the Norse an opportunity for peace. And it was a peace that was in both of their interests. This fighting had now gone on for hours. The exhaustion must have been bone deep. And despite the numerical advantage, 
and the death of King Harold Sigurdsson, the fact remained that this Norse army was incredibly effective in the field. The English could defeat this army, but how many lives would be lost in the process? Peace was better. So there was a break in the fighting, as there often was in drawn-out battles from this era. And King Harold Godwinson sought to come to terms with his brother, Tostig, who was now bearing the banner, Land Ravager. The king pleaded with his brother to accept terms. He promised that Tostig and all the men under his command would be given quarter and peace. Just please, let this be the end of it. And I don't know if Tostig, in this moment, wanted to accept his brother's offer. Because if he did, he didn't have the chance. We're told that the Norse army all began to shout. They began screaming. They told Harold Godwinson that they would rather die, one after another, than accept quarter from the English. They thundered that their bodies would form a corpse ring around Hadrada, protecting him even in death. And, like their fallen king, the Norse howled like demons and launched themselves back into battle. Beyond fear, beyond sense, beyond hope. We aren't told how long the fighting continued after that. But as evening approached, Eistin Orr and the reserves arrived, and they found their compatriots surrounded, land ravager fallen, and a bloody field of carnage before them. The arrival of the reserves seems to have taken the English by surprise, and Eistin was able to quickly link up with what remained of the Norse army, and lifting land ravager himself, he took command of the army. The sun was beginning to set now, and the English at that point faced some of the fiercest fighting of the day. Snorri tells us that Aura's ferocity, remembered as Aura's storm, nearly broke the English morale. However, his men were also exhausted. They had run over a dozen miles in full armor. They weren't fit to fight. They were barely fit to stand. And they had arrived to find their king already lost. The only thing that was keeping them upright at this point was battle rage. A rage, we're told, that was so consuming that they didn't even defend themselves, dropping their shields to the ground. And as the bone-shaking fatigue fully set in, some of them even began to shug off their coats of mail that they'd lugged all of these miles. And as they did so, the English tore them to pieces. Others simply collapsed and died without even being struck seemingly from exhaustion. It was only after the sun had fully set and the stars shone in the sky that the fighting at last came to an end. What few Norsemen remained alive and able to stand fled the field, limping back to their ships where the king's son, Olaf, as well as the noble brothers from Orkney, Paul and Erland, remained. It's possible that the English pursued the fleeing Norse to the ships, perhaps even fighting an additional battle on the shores where the ships were moored. But it was clear that the Norse had given up, and they were allowed to reboard their ships and return home, along with the body of their king, who they buried beside his half-brother, St. Olaf. This once great invasion fleet, reported to have included 300 ships stuffed with warriors, was now utterly broken. Only 24 ships made sail. 
meaning that perhaps as few as 500 of the Norse army had survived Hadrada's would-be conquest. It was done, but it came at an enormous cost to everyone. The invading usurper, Harald Hadrada, lay dead, as did large numbers of the Norse ruling class and countless unnamed warriors. It was a blow that would take generations to recover from. We've found archaeological remains at Rickhall, the likely Norse mooring site, of men who likely suffered battle wounds. And at Stamford Bridge, Orderic Vitalis reports that the place of battle remained easily identifiable as late as the 12th century because, quote, a great mountain of dead men's bones still lies there and bears witness to the terrible slaughter on both sides, end quote. And among those who died was Tostig. It isn't known how he fell, nor who killed him, or how. But as the English worked to clear the battlefield of the dead, literally thousands upon thousands of dead, they found a man who fit his description. And once they saw that he had a wart between his shoulders, they knew they'd found him. The king's brother. The man who had brought all this ruin upon them. But he was still the king's brother. And so, likely on royal command, Tostig was buried at York Minster. And there were many more than that who needed to be dealt with. There was also the question of what to do with all the war booty. When the Norse army collapsed, a great deal of plunder had been left behind, as well as ships, weapons, and other goods. And there was a question of what to do about that. There was also the question of what to do with the Earldom of Northumbria after the disastrous defense at Fulford Gate and the apparent immediate surrender following that loss. And so as his battered and bloodied army recovered, King Harold Godwinson was engaged in governance. It was diplomacy that would have likely lasted days. And in that time, he made two decisions he may have regretted. First, he left Earls Edwin and Morcar in power, which outraged some of the leading members of the Northumbrian aristocracy. And perhaps trying to soothe their concerns, Harold placed his own loyalist, a man named Merleswagen, as the Sheriff of the North, and he would act as his deputy in the region. And this was an act that in turn outraged Edwin and Morcar. Secondly, he stated that the Norse plunder would not be distributed to his army, and it would be instead retained by the crown and left in the care of Archbishop Eldred of York. It's entirely possible that the royal coffers were dry after the months-long coastal defense, and that Harold knew that he would need that money if anything else came up. It's also possible that given the state of the royal fleet, he was reluctant to give up the captured ships as he might need them in the future. But like the situation with Tostig's exile, while it is very easy to see the bind that Harold was in and how there really weren't any other options, that was likely cold comfort if you were the one who was paying the price. And for Harold's army, those who had been in a forced march for the better part of a week and who had just fought one of the longest battles that anyone had ever heard of, it probably felt like a slap in the face. 
and large numbers of the Ferd immediately deserted, saying that they refused to serve such an ungrateful lord. King Harold and large portions of the English military were bloodied, exhausted, and now thoroughly dispirited. But at least it was done. So Harold, his Huskarls, and what remained of the Ferd began the long march back to London. And somewhere along that road, a messenger came bearing news. Another fleet had landed, and it was led by William the Bastard. (laughs) 